and welcome to the Conscious Thinking Podcast from the Conscious Advertising Network. This is next in the series of thought-provoking sessions where today we are discussing climate denial. I'm your host, Sunu Singh from Creative Salon. And with me, I have John Grant, the author of Greener Market, a sequel to the best-selling Green Marketing Manifesto. Richard Black, former environment correspondent at the BBC and now Director, Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit and also the Conscious Advertising Network co-founder, Harriet Kingaby. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here. Harriet, um, can I start with you? Now, marketers don't ever have a choice but to stay in tune with all the emerging trends, etc., and what the consumer perceptions are. Now, war on plastic, if you remember, it was just quite important, especially in the last two years, particularly after the excellent uh, Blue Planet. And already we can see brands like McDonald's, a lot of uh, retailers working to make similar strides. I mean, that's one very small area that we're talking about. Do you think the marketing industry is doing enough when it comes to climate change? Well, I think there's always more that we can do. Um, I think for me, there is a a really important piece of uh, work coming out of the industry at the moment from the Ad Association. We deal with that on another podcast that looks at the sustainability of the industry in general. I think it's really important for for us to kind of, as an industry, to wake up and look at that. Um, But what I'm really concerned with this year as well is is, is the issue of of misinformation and disinformation online. Um, And we've seen this year, we've had some seismic uh, societal events and what has been extremely worrying is that there are actors online who seek to exploit inf- information around those events, target people and spread disinformation. And that can take many different forms. Um, it can take the form of conspiracy theories where, uh, you know, that, that prey on the fact that people are feeling scared and, and worried. Um, they might, it might be kind of greenwashing, uh, well, We've seen less of that this year, but, you know, in the climate context, it might be greenwashing where organisations are trying to suggest that they are a lot more kind of green than, than actually they really are. Or it might take the form of uh, kind of culture wars, uh, kind of narratives where we pit people against each other. And all of these I'm really concerned about this year. And I think it's really important that the advertising industry is aware of them, what they look like and starts to create uh, kind of strategies online that might help either stop these things from being funded by us or to tackle them from a narrative perspective. So I think there's always more we can do. And for me, I want the industry to to be thinking about everything it's doing, but also the attacks that it might see. That's interesting. Richard, from your sort of point of view, I'm interested as to how do you look at the advertising industry? Because obviously it has a very conspicuous role in capitalism as such. Um, so can the pace be fast enough, action deep enough for businesses really to make any changes? And I was talking to my, my 14-year-old um, uh, last night and he was reminding me of the unnecessary packaging, looking at all the online shopping that we've been doing during lockdown. I mean, how did we even let this happen for so long? Do you think we'll be even having that conversation, say, in 10 years' time or even less for that matter? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's interesting because marketers and advertising advertisers are by definition you know, engaged by clients. So what difference can advertisers and marketers make? It's, on the one hand, you could go to the, you could have a situation where the industry as a whole just, you know, goes to a fairly radical position and say, you know, we're simply not going to advertise high carbon stuff and we're not going to engage with any client that um, that promotes misinformation, but that might um, that might uh, not be a very easy thing to do. Um, there will probably be some people that would always do that. 
I think insisting on, you know, it, when you take on clients, I think insisting that what what goes out there is factual is clearly one thing. And that's not terribly difficult to do, I don't think, in this particular um, arena. Where adverts are placed is an interesting one because there are, as we know, there are, there's a movement out there, for example, you know, stop funding hate and, and now stop funding heat climate change so are you supporting are you as your clients money supporting those publications and so on that promote um misinformation and then larger you know how do you use your creative power because you know advertising is is more about it is more than about simply trying to sell products it creates images it creates memes and so on so how can you use your creativity to actually um change things that, that's interesting. John, your uh, book ultimately is all about this, isn't it? To kind of go beyond marketing that simply looks good, but marketing that does good. But are there any kind of sort of tips for marketeers that you have in, in, in the book or, any, or which actually talks about how do you not just sell your products, but also improve human life in, in, the, in the kind of times that we live in? Yeah, I think the, the context is... Um, really encouraging there's a whole section on in the book on for instance called 50 shades of greenwash which is a joke because there's only about 13 but i'm exaggerating um and there are some problematic areas of um advertising marketing so i'll come back and talk about all companies in a second and their marketing but in general i would say compared to when i wrote my previous book in 2007 then greenwash was absolutely rife and it was a lot of it was unknowing, like making a claim without supporting it with a fact or exaggerating a claim. And there's I think our industry has grown up to this issue and that it is um, more up with it. And I think generally signs are really encouraging. Globally, 85 percent of people are concerned or very concerned about climate change, whatever misinfo or disinfo is out there. That's particularly prominent. Like in the States, you're very likely uh, to be concerned about it if you live anywhere near a coast within 70 miles because you've seen fires and floods and other events which make it rather difficult to listen to the anchor on Fox News or your president telling you that it's it's all a conspiracy. Um, the there are still still some difficult areas. So there's um, one of the oldest cases of greenwash was actually Chevron, who produced a campaign talking about their butterfly farms, bear sanctuaries and so forth, which were very small projects funded by an oil company. So in the Bay, where they spent $500 um, on the butterfly sanctuary, they were also responsible for a major oil spill. And the, it's the question, as um, Harriet said, about proportionality and what you present. But that campaign by Chevron um, actually won an Effie Award in the industry because they proved that it was incredibly effective to associate an oil company with images of nature and themes of conservation. And that goes on. So the advertising industry has a very conspicuous role in capitalism. And from your lens, I would like to understand what do you think in terms of how that can have some sort of an impactful change. I mean, just just uh, imagine what all of us have been doing uh, in the last few months during lockdown is obviously um, online shopping, a lot of online shopping, and just looking at all the unnecessary packaging that arrives. I mean, would we at any time be having a discussion which even talks about how did we let this happen for so long? 
It's interesting to think about what action the industry could take on on different scales, really. I mean, at the most extreme, could you have an industry where all or most of the players refused to touch accounts of high carbon um, companies in the same way that, uh, you know, currently, for example, arms manufacturers and, and tobacco companies, a large chunk of the industry won't touch them. Could we get to the stage where that is the case with oil companies and with uh, car companies that um, spew stuff out the tailpipe and with airlines? It's an interesting uh, vision. And maybe in sort of 10 years or so, we, we might be there. We, we, we're clearly not there now. Um, I think there is a role, however, definitely at the moment in trying to make sure that the, the claims that companies make are based in fact and based in all of the fact. Um, and there are situations here that concern sort of climate science and probably more situations that can that, that concern the energy transition um, as well. And then I think the third uh, aspect of this really is that the advertising industry is, 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 is – uh, it's a font of creativity, really. It creates storylines, it creates narratives, it creates imagery. So it's the way that those are used and how they engage people um, in the clean energy transition and in getting concerned about the reality of the world around them. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting concept because obviously, John, in your book as well, you go way beyond talking about marketing that simply looks good, but it is about marketing that does good. And, and to Rich's point, I would imagine you're not really talking about brands or, or businesses indeed that, that sell tobacco or arms, etc. But if as a business um, that um, if you need to talk about climate crisis, biodiversity, social justice, single use plastics and all of that at a time of this global economic crisis, are these not far too many battles for, for brands to be fighting? Well, the, um, there are occasions when you need to talk about them and it can be really helpful um, with things like behaviour change and helping uh, people do their bit. But broadly, um, very encouragingly, most of the leading organisations in the world have set really stringent targets. Um, you've seen lots of announcements of net zero or um, IKEA says it's people and planet positive and um starbucks you know to really mainstream brands have said they're going to be resource positive so they have decided that there is a race that they're in it there is going to be a future green economy and they're going to compete for a piece of that so you see large traditional marketing organizations so for instance to pick another example nestle uh, a very large food and pharmaceutical in, um which for for commercial as well as sustainability reasons is divesting of brands like Herta cooked meats, mm -hmm. because that, you know, that is not a high growth, high attraction, high aspiration segment for them. And it's also not going to be driving their sustainability uh, targets either. And they're buying uh, brands in like they bought a, a company called the awesome burger, which is a, a competitor of impossible and is a plant-based meat. And it, these, um, trends have reached the point and i've been really encouraged by all of the green recovery alliance pronouncements and so forth that actually 2008 we did have a bit of a hiatus and a bit of a crash in engagement with sustainability as companies did uh, focus on the fact that they were in a boat and there seemed to be a hole below the line and they needed to just write their finances and what um the European Alliance for the Green Recovery has said is that, that there's a fire in our house called climate change and biodiversity and so forth. And there are also issues around social justice. There's now another fire in our um, uh, in our building called uh, pandemic 
economic impact. And we're going to have to fight all these fires at once. We can't afford to wait 10 years to sort the economy out, to sort this other stuff out. But if you're going to compete for the future and for the green future, then there are, I don't know, Richard, you're a fan of this. There are really positive solutions and messages like plant-based foods. And there are equivalents happening in, you know, fashion, food, uh, regenerative farming is a huge uh, climate solution. And, um, really big players now it used to be the patagonias of this world and the dr bronners were behind regenerative farming now walmart announced this year that they're going to be a regenerative company and it sort of starts with the fact so it, when starbucks looks at its entire carbon footprint says okay our ceo has announced we're going to be resource neutral what does that mean then if you look at your impact for instance on carbon about a fifth of all of starbucks impact is dairy and actually waste and plastics and those sorts of things, even coffee, agriculture distribution, are all smaller factors. There's nothing even half as big as their impact on dairy. So that gives them a focus. And then what the marketers can do is go, okay, non-dairy milks are quite cool. So one thing they've done is made a partnership with Oatly, which doubled the number of Oatly outlets in the States, and go, well, non-dairy milk is clearly going to be in a growth area next year. I imagine they might go into persuading people to drink black coffee or smaller servings of milk. And, but they know what they're working with because they've set an external target, which is, as people like to say these days, science-based. And, and the other huge factor in this is employee and uh, shareholder pressure those two things together. So Amazon seemed to come to the table about, you know, quite late on all of this after a internal action group from employees and uh, companies like BlackRock are busy going to shareholder meetings, demanding that companies uh, write the ship on, um, on issues like decarbonization and, and really show how they're setting science-based targets because they think it's for investors holding long-term sh- positions in companies. They don't want to see this level of climate risk on their books. And similarly, Procter & Gamble, another you know prominent um, marketing company, a couple of weeks ago had a shareholder revolt over their pace of uh, change on deforestation and both yeah. with their sourcing of palm oil and also their sourcing of timber for, for toilet rolls. And so the, the shareholders voted by a majority that they had to come back with a better plan. And yeah. those are the kind of pressure on companies. So as I said, most of the clients that I meet are going, well, we're in this race. There's, there's no climate change denial debate here. We're trying to work out how we can compete for this future green and just economy. And then and then you can start marketing in a, in a positive way because you – you know, what's your Brompton bike? You know, what, what's the product you're going to bring to market, which is a game changer for your industry? Um, Richard, from your point of view, it seems that all the big businesses, you know, the 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 um, the, the, the mammoth organisation, they all seem to be doing something that's linked to climate change. But some of the examples that, that John even mentioned, I mean, there, there are some bewildering examples. And as, as a former Beeb journalist, I mean, you've criticised Beeb itself for the coverage of the, uh, for its own coverage of energy as well. And, and how it needs to change the lens through which it looks at um, the the climate crisis. I just wonder, does you know, do we need to take some kind of responsibility on the kind of narratives that we're stitching together to make some kind of language that is easier, not just for the businesses and the corporate structures, but for people to understand and and therefore be able to sort of counteract the misinformation that that sits on all the digital platforms. 
Yeah, I think there are a couple of things there. Um, one is this, you know, is, is, is the stuff that's easy to understand. So the facts and the evidence is actually um, graspable because, frankly, a lot of it is really arcane and couched in percentages and parts per million and all this kind of stuff. Um, and the second is what's the story here? What, what is the story about how life is going to change? And we can see that some of the opponents of climate action have been very good, very skillful at putting out a story, a scare story out there that, oh, um, the country won't be able to afford a clean energy transition. And if we switch to renewables, the lights will go out and we're going to become poor. And anyway, it doesn't matter because China's not doing anything. They've been very skillful at putting out that. Um, I often return to the framing uh, that was developed by an organization called Mission 2020, which was set up by Cristiana Figueres, the former head of the UN Climate Convention. And their sort of watchword was that um, the clean energy transmission, uh, transition sorry, is necessary, desirable, and feasible. And you know, necessary because of climate change, desirable because it brings many other benefits like cleaner air and actually ultimately lower energy bills and, and so on and so forth. And feasible because actually we have the vast majority of the tools to get there. And I think if you look at the most damaging attacks that have been mounted by climate contrarians, it is actually on the feasibility part of it. It's the we can't do it. And actually that, that I think is the bit that is really uh, where there is a real opportunity there to engage people and give them agency. Yes, you can do this, for example, over the next 20 years, next time you change your gas boiler, switching to you know, a heat pump system or something like this. And you can get involved in the democratic process because why not? You're a citizen um, and your purchasing choices can make a difference and so on and so forth. Because that, the, 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 if you're thinking about climate impacts, generally that's a worrying thing. It's something else to worry with. But actually the clean energy transition, it's, it's forward looking, it's optimistic, it's engaging and people can actually do something. Um, Harriet, can I ask you in terms of the the um, misinformation study that you did um, and from uh, what um, Richard just said, did it actually throw up anything in terms of the lack of understanding that the businesses have? Uh, totally. And I completely agree with everything that, that, that Richard and John have just said. But I think we also need to put this into context of the environments where people receive this information. So, for example, on Facebook, we found examples of groups that are using Facebook ad tools to test and learn what works in terms of climate denial. And we found examples of people creating or layering conspiracy theories with climate denial because conspiracy theories create frames that are useful to climate misinformation. They degrade trust in science or multilateral agreements. We've even seen a multilateral agreement derailed by misinformation. So the global compact on migration was derailed, caused um, lots of people to pull out and the collapse of the Belgian government because of a coordinated series of attacks. I think we've also got to make sure that we're making sure that our media spend does go to sites which are showing quality reporting around this. Um, And I think we have a job to do. I think one half of our strategy has got to be for 2020 has got to be around, yes, how we persuade, how we we create great marketing that promotes Um, products that are going to solve the problem. And I also think we need adversarial strategies this year. I think we need to understand the misinformation, where it comes from, um, and be able to counter it. And if that's conspiracy theories, it might be, uh, you know, it it might be, uh, you know, kind of 
helping people to out of those. It might be creating paid media strategies that meet de um, climate deniers where they are and, and take them to credible information. Uh, I mean, it might be as simple as saying to your boss, no, I'm not working on that brief. Um, I'm not going to create, you know, place a load of adverts that, uh, that that spread that spread this kind of misinformation. I'm not going to work on these high carbon clients. But I think we all need adversarial strategies, both personally and um, in terms of our clients as well, because we're going to need to tackle this stuff head on. Indeed. Well, that's been hugely fascinating and always life affirming to end on a positive note as well. Thank you. Huge thank you to our guests, John Grant, Harriet Kingby and Richard Black. And also a big thank you to our friends, Marshall Street Editors and The Nerve. Thank you for listening and bye bye. <laughs>